Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 18th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Cleveland Browns wide receiver Andrew Hawkins to talk about the state of athlete activism and the aftermath of the shootings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and the killing of police officers in Dallas and Baton Rouge. Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal will be here to help us assess the Tour de France and why race leader Chris Froome ran up a mountain. Finally, we'll look at the debate over wages in minor league baseball and what should be done about the paltry pay in the sport's lowest rungs. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Welcome back, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And back to his customary spot in the number two hole in the lineup where he is responsible for bunting Stefan into scoring position on a weekly basis. I'm fast and scrappy. I get on. <laughs> it's Mike Pesca, the host of The Jest. Hey, Mike. Uh, advanced metrics indicate that the number two hitter should be one of your best hitters, actually. <laughs> Maybe your, ba- not, your best hitter. Yeah, we're scrappy, though. So it's good to have everybody back together. We had, made a, yeah. we had made a promise a long time ago. And the lesson here is never promise anything to talk about the OJ made in America documentary series. We are going to talk about it this week on the slate plus bonus segment. It's a documentary about OJ. I remember people really liked it a while ago. It's five parts. (laughs) It's a long time ago. (laughs) It was good. Came out in 2016, kind of a crazy year. Um, If you want to hear the conversation, sign up for slate plus and you can get this bonus segment and the bonus segments on other Slate podcasts. And you can get a two-week free trial. You got to do it. 
Do it. Slate.com slash hangout plus. Do it. Do it. In the last few weeks, the names Alton Sterling and Philando Castile joined Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Laquan McDonald, John Crawford, and many, many others on the long list of black men killed by police officers. And in Dallas and Baton Rouge, police officers themselves were shot and killed by men intent on doing them harm. This recent spate of violence has inspired huge numbers of athletes to speak out more publicly and passionately than in any time in recent memory. Let's listen to a clip from last week's ESPY Awards in which Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron James opened the show with a speech that had nothing to do with basketball. Here's Carmelo Anthony. Good evening. Tonight is a celebration of sports, celebrating our accomplishments and our victories. But in this moment of celebration, we actually start the show tonight this way. The four of us talking to our fellow athletes with the country watching, because we cannot ignore the realities of the current state of America. The events of the past week have put a spotlight on the injustice, distrust, and anger that plagues so many of us. The system is broken. The problems are not new. The violence is not new. And the racial divide definitely is not new. But the urgency to create change is at an all-time high. Andrew Hawkins, a wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns, tweeted after the killings, don't pick between not wanting innocent cop shot or innocent black shot. Real Americans know both scenarios are evil and both deserve justice. He also quoted Martin Luther King saying, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Hawkins gained notice in 2014 when he wore a T-shirt during warm-ups for a game that said justice for Tamir Rice and John Crawford. Later, he said he felt compelled to support Rice and his family. If I was to turn away from what I felt in my soul was the right thing to do, that would make me a coward, and I couldn't live with that. Andrew Hawkins, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. So what are you feeling right now? What do you want to say? Um, I mean, it's just a, you know, we're just at a point um, in regards to what seems like, you know, race relations that, you know, we're kind of at a tipping point in America and it's, it's a crucial time, you know, and um, it, it's sad. Honestly, it's, I think it's a place that deep down no one wants to be in. Right. But, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's something that needs addressed. It's something that needs fixed. And, you know, hopefully we can figure out and take steps towards doing that. And how did you feel when you heard um, that speech at the ESPYs and you saw Carmelo Anthony? I mean, he posted a very powerful uh, message on Instagram. You have the biggest stars in all of sports now saying things that you were saying a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love it, man. I think, um, I think it's important. I think it's something bigger than sports. Um, you know, because in this situation, you know, this could – this these athletes are some of the only people of color that are given this platform that can really, you know, truly raise awareness. Um, so, I mean, I, trust me, when I went through, people told me to shut up and play football. What they don't realize is me not having to have the conversations that my parents had with me, with my son, or my son having to have that conversation with his son um, is more important to me than what anybody's public perception of me is when I give my opinion. You know, and I think it's, like I said, I think it's crucial for athletes to do so. Um, yeah, I did two years ago. And I think everybody's boiling point is different, right? Um, everybody heats up to their boiling point at different paces. Everyone gets to two, 212 degrees at different paces. You know, some 
kind of a, a hotter fire, some it's slow burn. But still, you know, I, I believe that eventually everybody's going to get to that point. And I think that's what you're seeing now is a lot of athletes who maybe weren't at that point two years ago or weren't at that point three years ago or one year ago. They're starting to, to heat towards that because it's important. It's, it's something bigger than sports. And, um, you know, like I said, I don't think it's so much about us in this time right now because, you know, we're used to it. We've dealt with it. We've been taught it. You know, but as people have children and you really look at your legacy and what, you know, you stand for, you, you don't want your children to deal with the same things you dealt with. I mean, just like no parent wants their children to grow up in the same economic environment that they grew up in. They want it to be better. They want everything to be better for the children. I think, you know, athletes are starting to see that. Um, and that's why they're starting to speak out. Uh, leagues like the NFL historically haven't always been sympathetic to players mm-hmm. who take strong political stances. And you admitted uh, a couple of years ago when you wore the Tamir Rice T-shirt that you thought about it in advance. You were a little scared about the potential consequences. Yeah. Your your road to the NFL was not easy, and you wrote about this on the Players Tribune. What mm-hmm. what changed from before you wore that T-shirt to now? Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I think there's there's people who just received me different. You know, I mean, I, I was kind of always the underdog that everyone identified with, and I still think I'm that way. You know, but like you said, I mean, it's, if you're on the other side of the fence on a, on a certain issue, your opinion is going to change. Um, and that was the part that I was scared of, because like I said, I built my reputation on being, you know, this guy who's all about football, and I am, and I'm still the same guy, and it doesn't change, um, but this is important. It's something bigger than me, and, you know, whatever backlash I was going to get, whatever consequence there was for state in my opinion I was okay with you know because I, like I said I look at my son's eyes and look at the eyes of my daughter and you know I would be a bad dad if my number one goal wasn't always to put them in the best situation as possible and shame on me for me to have this platform and me to have this opportunity to stand up for something that I thought was unjust and I passed on it you know what I mean that that I, I can't do that and we shouldn't do that anybody you know, and, and that's why it was important to me. And I, and again, I don't think that every athlete should come out and speak. That is not it. If you if you're not passionate about this subject or any subject for that matter, then yeah, shut up and do your thing because you know this, this isn't something where you just jump in the conversation. Don't just post things. Don't just come out and say things just because it's the it's the trend the trending thing to do. That's the wrong thing. And and like I said, I, that that's the part that I'm against. You know, stay out of it if you're not passionate about it on both sides. If you agree or disagree. Or if you don't, if you don't care about either of it, then just just let it go. Don't don't just jump on a bandwagon because you know I think that will hurt it more than it helps. So back in 2014, when you put on the T-shirt about Tamir Rice and John Crawford, um, you had a quote that echoes some of what you're saying now. You've said, by most accounts, I've done a solid job of decently building a good name. Before I made the decision to wear the T-shirt, I understood I was putting that reputation in jeopardy. And you talked about reputation. Now, I look at it more like you were building up credibility and maybe Mm -hmm. now you're spending it. But the beginning of that quote starts with the words, I'm not an activist. And I wonder, in the couple years since then, have you changed uh, how you would describe yourself if you're an activist? You know, I I really don't believe that. I mean, you know, other people have called me that, um, you know, but like I said, and the reason why I say that is because I don't want it to seem like there's any other agenda except what's right. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I've said it before. It's not about who's right. It's about what's right. And it's, it's, it's that simple. You know what I mean? And that's, 
that's as simple as it is with, as it is with me. And that's, that's on any, any, any situation. It's, it's, it's not about who's right. It's about what's right. And, and that was my, that was my reason for, for saying that. And, and I still believe it today. So uh, Carmelo on Instagram posted a photo of the famous Ali summit where Jim mm-hmm. Brown and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came out in support of Ali um, and his conscientious objection to the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. What do you think the connection is between that moment and black athletes speaking out in the 1960s and what's happening today? You know, um, I don't know. I think, I think that'll, I think time will prove that. I think time will prove it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's real popular right now and it's, it's getting a lot of attention and it should be, but what we do moving forward will be more important than, you know, making any announcement or, you know, how you educate the people around you, what steps you take towards, you know, making it better. Um, what sacrifices you make, you know, I mean, this is, the equation of life is simple. You know, you can't, there's no gain without pain. You know, for whatever reason, that's the way this world was designed. In every facet, it's, there's, it's the same thing. You know, there has to be a sacrifice. You know, so if you think, if you're tweeting, um, and this is what I tell the young athletes who, who come to me about these situations because I've been through them and, you know, I've seen both sides of it. If, if you're tweeting just because everyone else is tweeting, you know, and you're not uncomfortable, if you're not, if it doesn't feel like a sacrifice, like when I wore that T-shirt, it was a sacrifice to me. That's how it felt. It was, it stressed me out. It, it bogged me down because I understood what I was putting at risk, but I was willing to put it at risk in order for someone to gain, in order for the situation to get better. You know, if you don't do that, even now with the athletes that are speaking out now, if you're speaking out and you're comfortable, it's not the right thing. I'm not saying being comfortable in a bad way. I'm saying you have to put something at risk. You have to, something has to be sacrificed. Now, if you're a person that is like, man, I really don't want to tweet this or I really don't want to say it, and people are going to, and you're, you're, you're terrified of the backlash and you're scared, then that is a sacrifice. Your, your tweet is a sacrifice, but it, it takes sacrifice for us to move forward. So, you know, I think time will tell how connected we are to the pioneers of those days. You know, but like I said, I, I don't believe we'll go anywhere if, if the people who really care about it don't sacrifice, make themselves uncomfortable to get what we think is right. You know, I think comfortable and uncomfortable is a really uh, interesting way of phrasing it because sports are the place where everybody gathers to cheer regardless Mm -hmm. of politics or skin color or background. But there are plenty of people who will cheer you when you make a catch who might be afraid of you if they saw you walking down the street or would be willing to call someone who looks like you an epithet or might stop you if you're driving down a city street late at night. And it seems to me the power of uh, that athletes have is to expose that kind of hypocrisy, to make fans uncomfortable. But at the same time, there is that risk of alienating fans or teammates who might have different political beliefs or, or people in the front office. I mean, do you agree with that? And how does that sort of factor into how you think about uh, these issues and how public you can be? Yeah, I do agree with it uh, to an extent. I mean, I, I'm a unique situation. Like you said, I'm, I'm five foot six. Uh, 175 pounds. Yeah, maybe, maybe people wouldn't be afraid of you walking down the street. I'm sorry. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that people were super, uh, you know, afraid of me in, in any facet. But you know, I am. I live a normal life. You know, I don't walk into a room and everyone looks at me and says, "Oh, he plays for the Cleveland Browns," or he's an NFL superstar. That that, that doesn't happen. I go under the radar. You know, most people don't realize who I am until I tell them. So, you know, it's not like my life 
has changed since I've been in the NFL or people treat me any different. Now, that's not the case for everybody, you know, and some people who, you know, make it to where we are, life changes for them. They're treated differently. They're recognized. They're six, six, uh, you know, 280 pounds. And, you know, people automatically know what they do for a living. That's not, that's not it with me. So I'm very much still connected to the way that I've always been perceived. And it, it happens. I mean, I don't like, I don't feel bad for people who, you know, I'm not trying to play up anything. It, it is the truth. You know, I mean, I've walked by numerous cars where they lock the doors. You know, I get in the elevator and someone moves out the way. Or, you know, I've been to a place where people don't want to, where some people's children don't think their children should play with my children. And that breaks my heart. You know what I mean? Because my four-year-old, like I said, he is the, the most kind-hearted person in, I've ever met in my life. Now, granted, he's four, but he doesn't know people wouldn't like him. He doesn't understand that there, that people would hurt him. He doesn't, you know, so when I get in those situations, that's what breaks my heart. You know, that I, I see this, this loving child and I have to have these conversations with him. And there's a lot of conversations I'm going to have to have with him that are uncomfortable. But this one specifically is one that I think we as a people can change and need to change. It has to change. You know, and, and I think that's just where we are. So, Andrew, you're 30 you're you've already banked a few million dollars. I know that guaranteed mm-hmm. contracts aren't real in the NFL, but you know, in the bank right. you already have seven, eight. I know that you signed for I think thirteen point eight. You take classes mm-hmm. at Columbia, you have kids. All of these add up to what makes you have the opinions you have and takes the take the stances you have. But I think yeah. we're usually told that it's very hard for an athlete to take a stance, especially if they're on the fringe or on the bubble and they don't want to make waves. Do you think the solidity that you have professionally and perhaps personally allowed you to take the stance you have in any way played into the boldness that you're showing now? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, honestly, if I was a second year person, I, I probably wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be the same. I, you know, I would still probably feel strong and, I, and you're younger than so maybe you don't understand as much. You know, but as you get older and as you, your situation changes, it, it it becomes different. You know what I mean? It's it's you know, yes, I have to provide for my family. So there's a chance that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family, who is always number one. Like I said, my kids are always number one. Um, then yeah, maybe maybe it's not the same. Um, but like I said, your everybody's boiling point is differently, and you get to that point of different, and, you, and you're you're at peace with it. You know, there's a reason why. It was Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, you know, LeBron James and Chris Paul up there and not four undrafted, you know, rookies that just mm-hmm. signed with their teams in the NBA draft. You understand? Like, it, it, there's a reason. There's a reason why it's like that. You know, and, and, and also the platform. You know, early in my career, I wouldn't have had the platform. At that time, I had it. You know, I was the leading receiver for an NFL team. And honestly, the stars aligned because it was the first game that Johnny football started. So there was a million reporters in there and a million people covering the game in itself. So the opportunity was just there for me, probably more than it would have been had it been a week earlier or a week later. So LeBron James has really walked the walk in a lot of ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. the millions and millions of dollars in scholarships that he's provided to kids in Akron, his hometown. At the same time, he was criticized by a lot of people for not speaking out about Tamir Rice earlier. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on kind of how, uh, you know, what's fair about judging, you know, the biggest stars in the game and, and what they should be doing? 
it's not fair, honestly. Um, you know, I'm never a kind of person to say what somebody else should do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much do what you feel to do. And I mean, I know, Le- I know LeBron, how much, you know, he, how much he cares and how, and how much he does, you know, cause he's not the kind of person to, to do things and, and pound his chest about it. It's just not him, you know? So, you know, I would never fix my mouth to say anything about LeBron because I know how much he means to the community. I know how much he does in the community, which is honestly a hundred times more than your average athlete. Um, you know, but because he's not come out and speaking about it and whatever, there's other ways to do it, you know, and I, and I know he's, he's doing that. So, you know, I, I would never fix it. And I think if people are wrong to do it, to, to, to compare him to what you, to your way of wanting to do it. You know what I mean? If, if you're passionate about it, do it and do it your way. You know, it's not always going to be in front of the cameras after a football game or whatever. Like that was, that was, that was the way I did it. You know, somebody else's different ways. And that's, that's LeBron. And I know he is, and I, you know, I can't get into specifics, but you know, it did upset me that people were calling him out for that because it, it, they were just, they were just wrong. After you wore the Tamir Rice t-shirt, Andrew, the head of Cleveland police union called it pathetic and mm-hmm. said that you should stick to football. And over the past weekend, a different head of the Cleveland police union said that Obama had blood on his hands because of the Baton Rouge shootings. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of, how are you, how are you weighing how much to say and how much to respond and your obligation to your family, to yourself, to your fans, and to the 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 team that you that you work for, in what you what you decide to go forward and say. Um, well, I, you know, I, like I said, I don't think that I'm saying anything wrong, um, and that's just how I judge it. Um, it's not, you know, I, I believe it's not so much about the people. That's just my take. You know, I think people making it about people is the wrong way to do it. I think it's a it's a system. Um, systems are broken, um, and, and the systems are what need fixed. You know, I, I think there's bad people in every sector of America. There's bad people since the beginning of time. Literally, you know, one of the first four human beings was someone who killed somebody. You know, so that, that's never going to change, unfortunately. I think what the issue is is consequence. There should be the same consequences across the board for the same acts. Um, there should be the same protection across the board. There should be the same opportunities across the board. So it's just a matter of, you know, making the system work for everybody. And as if history is an indicator, it just, it just hasn't, it hasn't been that way. And statistics will show that. We're told that the NBA, or we've seen that the NBA is a little more receptive to say social issues and the discussion of it. And the idea that this is going to break up a locker room just doesn't get repeated as much in the NBA as maybe it did 10 years ago. And as it does in the NFL, the NFL, we're told they very much believe that anything can sow locker room discord and it's a very top down, almost militaristic place. And therefore, these sort of sentiments won't play well in an NFL locker room. But you're inside NFL locker rooms and does that description sound like the NFL locker room you know or do you think that it's uh, an exaggerated view of how of how oppressive say an NFL locker room is yeah yeah the idea that some, that this is a distraction that word yeah, that's dist- always thrown distraction around distraction idea exactly you know like i said i mean there's there's not a false narrative that things create a distraction you know i mean a lot of things create a distraction and when you're you're in a quest as a football team you want to limit distractions. I'm, I'm very much on board with that because I am a football player and things can be distractions. And we have 53 people that we have to make sure aren't distracted 
because we only have 16 terms to do it. You know what I mean? And, and so everyone matters um, so much. But I don't. I don't think that's. Yeah, you know, I just don't. I, I just don't agree with that. Honestly, I think. Um, you know, as a, as a football team, I mean, I just take the Cleveland Browns. We're we are a very close football team, and you know, we care about each other and we understand each other and we have conversations on everything under the sun. Um, and like you know, going into this year, I mean, that's our. This is an issue that everyone's going to deal with going forward. You know, every, every locker room, we talk about the same things everybody else talks about. You know, we're from the same sectors of America everybody else is from. We have the same diversity, the same mix. You know, so we don't run away from issues amongst each other because we're brothers. And we have to build that bond because we're always on a quest to be world champion. That's, that's always our quest. And if you don't have that bond, it's not going to happen. So, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I guess every locker room is different, but our locker room, I think, is more than fine. Well, this is this whole conversation has just been a prelude, so we could ask about how RG three is looking and <laughs> off season <laughs> training camp. I mean, let's get to the real the real substance. Um, yeah, <laughs> RG is looking great, man. Guys, <laughs> looking great, honestly. Yeah, you didn't really have to answer that question, um, but <laughs> um, all right. Andrew Hawkins is a wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Great, we appreciate it. Take care. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Defending Tour de France champion Chris Froome is the heavy favorite to win his third title in the world's most famous bike race as he leads by a minute and 47 seconds heading into the final week of the 21-stage event. Froome briefly fell out of the lead on Thursday when one of his competitors ran into a motorbike that had been forced to stop on the spectator-clogged slope of Mont Ventoux. That led to a pileup that wrecked the British rider's bike. Rather than wait for a new ride, Froome decided to take off and start running up the mountain. Here's, <laughs> here's what that sounded like. Froome, Look at this, oh, Phil. Well, you can run all you like, but the rules state you've got to have your bike with you. He hasn't got his bike. Well, this I have never, ever seen before. Neither have I, but you've got to carry your bike. You can't just uh, go for a hike up the country lanes of Mont too. Oh, but you can go for a hike on the country lanes of Mont Ventoux. Uh, Froome eventually got a new bike. He finished well off the leading pace, but tour officials decided to restore his lead with the race director explaining it was an exceptional decision because of this exceptional situation. Joining us now to discuss is the exceptional Jason Gay. He's a sports <laughs> columnist for the Wall Street Journal and a man who is an expert in all things spandex. Hey, Jason. Yeah, I'm your spandex correspondent. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, I love bike racing, don't you, Josh? That's always something. Yeah, you wrote in your column for the journal that it has some of the greatest unintentional comedy on the planet. And I'm glad that in this uh, situation, this life-threatening situation, where you have spectators endangering the lives of athletes, we can just all laugh about it. Well, let's be very clear about something, which is that there are numerous safety issues with regards to professional cycling or cycling of any kind. Uh, but what we're talking about here on mountaintop finishes 
you know, these aren't high-speed collisions and so on. Basically, it's nuisance fandom has become the problem. And you have these incredible scenes, and they've been going on for decades, uh, where fans clog the mountaintop finishes and basically create these funnels for the lead riders to go through and sometimes getting as close to breathe on them and pat them on the back or give them a push. Uh, it's one of the things, one of the things people love about the sport. It's one of the great, you know, insane visual effects of what it is to watch a Tour de France or a mountaintop finish at any level of pro tour racing. So it's not like a life or death thing. Uh, you know, these guys collided into the back of a motorbike. It sounds much more dramatic than it actually was. They weren't going terribly fast, but it was so comically crazy because then what you had was this chain reaction. Christopher Froome, as you mentioned, the yellow jersey winner, all of a sudden uh, disengaged from his bike. His bike was not functioning for some reason now and uh, started to run up the mountain. And Phil Leggett in that clip was exactly right. You cannot... <laughs> cross the finish line, Josh, without your bicycle. That would be illegal. So had he padded it all the way up Mont Bon 2, he would have been DQ'd. It's very hard to run in, in bike shoes. Which, this is true. This is true. Which I think they have we should note little, here. they got the little things in the front, the little clips. Yes, they have yeah. the little tap shoe kind of yeah. uh, quick release entries for, you know, depending on what your pedal system is. And interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, before Froome got his actual team bike returned to him by his team car, he tried to take what is called a neutral support bike, uh, which is a, there's a car that rides behind the leaders or behind the Peloton where they can hand out to you just a stock bike, a stock yellow bike. And you just hop on that thing until your team car supplies you with your actual bike. And that it's, like a, it's like a city bike or a capital bike share bike? Exactly. It's a bunch of city bikes <laughs> on top of a, a Mazda. No, it's, uh, it, 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 these are, uh, I don't actually know what the frame manufacturer is, but the, the, it's, it, they're supplied by Mavic, which is a big French wheel company. Anyway, Froome hopped on one of those, and he looked like a kid on a tiny bicycle uh, all of a sudden, and the pedals didn't work, and it was just a disaster, and so he started running again. Now, Jason, I'm going to back you up here, because it sounded to me like you were defending the incursion of these asshole fans yeah. on the roadway yeah. near the top of these mountains the after color. these guys have been like busting their lungs to yeah. climb <clears throat> up Mount Ventoux and, and, other, and other mountains. It reminds me always of Yankees fans trying to steal Chris Chambliss's helmet as he's rounding <laughs> the bases after hitting the ALCS uh, winning yeah. home run in 1976. Here's what one rider said after the uh, Froome pileup, Peter Statina. Yep. Quote, you have guys dressed up in Borat costumes showing yep. their ass, and it's more about themselves than supporting the race sometimes. I don't understand why you have to act like a buffoon. Well, then he well, doesn't understand the human condition, but that's a separate question. <laughs> uh, first of all, Borat costumes, what's not to like? I support that in any uh, athletic endeavor. Uh, but I think what Peter's arguing is that the crowds somehow have become even crazier. I don't think riders want them prohibited completely from mountaintop finishes. You know, they put barriers now in the final kilometers of these right. races because they specifically don't want this kind of thing to happen at the very, very, very end of a mountaintop finish. And there's something of an antiseptic quality when that happens, when they go inside the barriers and all of a sudden it just looks like any other roadway. Uh, whereas these scenes in the Pyrenees, in the Alpine climbs, where the fans are, again, breathing down the necks of the riders, are so fantastic. And I'm willing to buy that 
you know, there's probably some, you know, 21st century narcissism that's happening here, selfie culture that's just gotten a little too rabid and crazy. Uh, but I would hate to see a circumstance in which cycling struck it from the sport. And I should mention that there was a very particular circumstance here on this stage that created this climate, yeah. which was Mont Bantu, you know, uh, it has a famous sort of rocky lunar-like landscape, which is the last six climbing uh, kilometers of the mountain. It was so windy that the tour actually moved the finish down six kilometers. So you can imagine all these fans who were compressed into those final uh, 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 miles of the race were all squished into a much, much more condensed area. That's what created the mess. Now, that's not to say that there isn't some responsibility on the uh, organizers to have anticipated this and to create some sort of uh, clearer funnel for the riders, but but this was not a constant issue. So earlier this tour, Froome punched a guy who was wearing a yellow yeah. wig. He said, yeah. I have no, absolutely nothing against the Colombian fans. Well, maybe against this one particular Colombian <laughs> fan. Last year, he claimed that someone threw a cup of urine on him. Yes. The thing yes. that's interesting to me is that in every other sport, we have this move towards keeping the fans away. Monica from, yeah. selishing the fan. Right. There's experience. concern about maybe a crazed fan stabbing someone. Sure. Or, sure. Um, you know, when the NBA players went into the stands and Auburn Hills, this was like the worst thing that had ever happened in the history of sports. Like separation and and then. You know, like when a fan runs on the field in any event, you're, you're not even right. allowed to show it for fear yeah. that it could inspire copycats. So what is it yeah. about the tour that sort of stands apart and where e even as writers complain about it, there's this sense that this is a tradition that needs to be preserved? Yeah. Uh, listen, you know, rider safety is the most important thing here. I want to emphasize that. But I would say that you know, it is that closeness to the action which makes bike racing, bike racing. And also, just from a logistical standpoint, you're talking about 140, 160 kilometer stages. You know, you cannot close off an entire course like that. So there's inevitably going to be places on the course, especially, again, when the mountaintops. And the reason why the fans are lining the mountaintop finishes and they're running alongside the riders is that they're riding up these like 10, 12, 14% grades. They're not going terribly fast. You can actually run alongside the riders. They're not doing this on flat stages. Um, and again, it is sort of one of the things that makes the sport the sport. And when you consider the fragile ecosystem that is professional bike racing, that it is a sponsor-driven sport that has been thoroughly scandalized over the past couple of decades by doping, I don't think anything that encourages, uh, 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 infringes upon fan contact should be uh, diminished. I don't mean that literally fan contact, but I just mean the closest to the action, which makes the sport uh, different. Let's talk about Chris Froome a little bit. Uh, he yeah. does not seem to be beloved by the French fans. One writer, I, I was reading a piece about him, said he looks a little too robotic, not sure. Latin enough. Um, he reminds people of Lance Armstrong, and Lance Armstrong now reminds people of only one thing, rampant sure. cheating. Uh, how has this, uh, this, this image of Chris Froome evolved? Well, I think it's actually uh, taken a, a turn for the better, this tour. Uh, and we can't talk about Chris Froome without talking about the team that he's on, which is Team Sky, which is the Sky Television-backed super team that was created in Britain, uh, led by a guy named Dale, Dave Brailsford, uh, with the absolute objective of becoming the most dominant cycling team in the world. Which and they cr created have recently, right, Jason? 
Yes, they've been created in the last decade, and specifically with the idea of creating British champions. And they had one, Bradley Wiggins, before Froome, and now Froome, who was actually born in Kenya, raised in South Africa, uh, now a UK resident, is another British champion. And they have a very, very tactical, strategy-driven, uh, 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 data-driven approach to cycling, in which, you know, like the old, you know, U.S. postal teams, discovery teams at Lance Armstrong, he is a very protected rider by a very, very strong team, and he doesn't really sort of jump out and start to make the race happen on his own until very late in the stages. And what French fans and what cycling fans tend to like is they like the riders with quote-unquote panache. You know, panache is such a big thing. It's the dramatic attack. It's the romantic uh, thing that fails. You know, all the kinds of things and making the race taking the race to the other riders, and that Froome was sort of this robotic approach. Now, this has changed this year because Froome has done a couple of things in this race. One of them, of course, running up a mountain. Never seen that before. <laughs> uh, but also done things like jumping into a breakaway with Peter Sagan, who is the world champion, on his flat stage and doing some really sort of dramatic things. He had a downhill escape where he sort of uh, showed this crazy new pedaling style where his whole torso is basically on the front handlebar of the bike. Um, he's done some things that I think uh, have countered the room as a robot idea. Um, and What about and, punching and, and, that dude? And punching the guy. I think that's a little <laughs> bit of personality too. 250 franc fine, I believe, for that. So, you know, not without... Uh, <laughs> a, I, I read it was a, a 200 franc thing. fine, which is $203. I didn't know the dollar was so attuned to the franc. This is why I follow Cycling News. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there was, I think, what, an under-23 female rider who was uh, nabbed for putting a motor in her bike. Um, and so, and apparently some Italians were too. This is a thing. I guess my question is, Jason, um, how much of it is a thing? And for those of us who are a little ignorant, wouldn't it be pretty apparent or is it just you switch on the motor during a climb and save yourself some energy? So how do the motors work and how widespread do you think it is? They're basically electric assist. And this kind of technology exists on commuter bikes everywhere. You can go down to any regular bike stop, bike shop and, and buy a bike that has some form of electric assist now. Um, this is a much more sophisticated version. It goes in the bottom bracket of a bicycle. And what it does, it doesn't like take your bike from going 15 miles an hour to 45 miles an hour. It gives you an extra 100 to 200 watts of power, which if you're going up a mountainside and you are struggling or you're doing well and you want to get away, can be a very, very significant margin. Um, and so that's what the appeal of it is for people who are willing to go to this incredible extreme. These things, apparently, uh, what the main economy for them are Grand Fondo riders. These are the big sportive races that exist across the United States now and across Europe, um, you know, tend to be $200 entry fees. Uh, and there are a lot of competitive weekend warriors who like to get a little advantage. So these apparatus, which I, I understand cost somewhere between a thousand to $4,000, not Frank's dollars. Um, you know, they're not for everybody, obviously that's a high price point, but for those who are willing to go the distance, they're available. So what is the prevailing wisdom about how cheaty the sport is now? You know, I don't think that anyone can say with a straight face that cycling will ever be, you know, struck completely of cheating of any kind. Uh, I think there is a general consensus that things like a biopassport, which is something that measures, uh, you know, blood values in a, in a rider um, over the course of a long period of time, have uh, 
if not eliminated doping, certainly curbed it to the degree that which, you know, those who are doing it are doing less of it. And those who aren't doing it are, you know, given a little bit more of a chance than they once had. Um, I don't think it's the kind of thing, again, where you're going to be able to say, okay, cycling is a clean sport. There have been a number of positives in the sport in the last bunch of years, uh, but there haven't been the kind of epic, you know, Tour de France stopping type scandals that we saw certainly a number of years ago. And anytime that you have a team that's super dominant and is known for controlling every aspect of the race and and of its riders, there's going to be suspicion attached to that. So do you think that being suspicious of Sky is fair or unfair? I think it's inevitable. And Froome has talked about that. And Bradley Wiggins before him talked about it too. And, you know, Vincent Nibali, who, you know, won the tour in between those uh, Froome victories, had the same kind of suspicions. I think this is going to be something that's going to exist with any Grand Tour champion, especially someone who has shown dominance like a Froome has. Uh, that's absolutely part of the you know recipe now. I don't know if it's a problem. I just think it's inevitable. And, you know, you feel for somebody who has to go through it if they are, in fact, clean. But, you know, it's, it's a product of the times. Jason Gay is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And unfortunately, Jason, we tested your urine and you tested positive. So this, this whole segment for, for is on a motor. Yeah, this, <laughs> yeah, you're using a motor. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, unfortunately, this uh, segment is unofficial, but, you know, people can just think about it what they will. Hey, I appreciate that. And listen, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, right? Hey, amen, brother. Thank you, Jason. Bye. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. In February 2014, three minor league baseball players filed a lawsuit claiming they had been paid below minimum wage. A year and a half later, towards the end of 2015, a federal court ruled that CENI versus Office of the Commissioner of Baseball could proceed as a class action, giving 10,000 current and former minor leaguers the option to join the class. The suit challenges a system in which, per Baseball America, players get between $1,100 and $2,150 a month and are paid only during the five-month minor league season, not including spring training. Back in June, two members of Congress introduced legislation named the Save America's Pastime Act Mm -hmm. that would preserve that system by adding an exemption for minor league baseball to the Fair Labor Standards Act. That's uh, the act that governs federal overtime pay and the minimum wage. The one of the bill sponsors retracted her support after a torrent of negative press. Major League Baseball is still on board. In a press release, MLB noted that there are approximately 7,500 players in minor league baseball. MLB pays over a half a billion dollars to minor league players and signing bonuses and salary each year. Minor league clubs could not afford these massive player costs. Moreover, for the overwhelming majority of individuals, being a minor league baseball player is not a career, but a short-term seasonal apprenticeship in which the player either advances to the major leagues or pursues 
another career. Uh, Mike, how would you like to take a short-term seasonal apprenticeship? Which sometimes lasts, (laughs) you know, eight to 10 years. Yeah. Well, if I could augment it by, you know, selling Chevys at the local dealership, you know, trading on my status as a Nashville biscuit or a Frisco (laughs) Rough Rider, maybe, maybe it'd be good. Um, I think that there is a general rule of thumb about the horribleness of a law or piece of proposed legislation and the grandiosity of the title of said law. Hello, USA Patriot Act, which is an acronym. I could be wrong. Maybe there was some really good law that had a really grandiose name. But this would not save America's pastime. The Civil fact, Rights Act, for example. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was that was a that was the epitome of downplaying. downplaying right? yeah, civil yeah. Rights Act is pretty nice. It's like, yeah, just some civil rights. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would think that uh this would not save America's pastime. I would think that this would passing the law would further uh, advance something that was unfair. But I, I also think, I also wonder why there isn't more impetus for change among uh, what we would call the stakeholders, you know, like some players who could put pressure because most players, if not all players, spend some time in the minor leagues and a lot of the very rich millionaire players know what it's like to have toiled in obscurity. They probably have some friends who can barely, you know, get by, who were just, you know, four miles an hour on their fastball, worse, or one ulnar collateral ligament injury different. Um, I, I remember reading R.A. Dickey's book about just how hard it was, and I would think that there are a lot of people who haven't written autobiographies who really can empathize, and, you know, players have a lot to worry about with their game and a lot to worry about with their own labor situation, but you would think some change would come from the actual players who made it and the actual union who could put some downward pressure to alleviate the conditions. And the second thing I, is we expect the owners of minor league teams, major league teams to want to save money on labor costs as much as possible. But there comes a time when they're hurting themselves. And couldn't a decent argument be made that better standards would keep more people in the game and would actually eventually help the major league roster we're talking about just pennies compared to, you know, one blown contract on Albert Pujols. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of things there. One, the let, let's be clear that the only teams that are going to save money here by underpaying minor league baseball players are major league teams, minor league clubs in affiliated baseball, the teams that are affiliated with major league teams don't pay the salaries. So this is part of the operating budget of the major league teams. And I think Mike, to answer your question about why that, why more major league players don't step forward and support uh, the, the, the players that they once were is partly because this is an example of how these systems get absolutely entrenched in the minds of all of the stakeholders that, Hey, you've got to pay your dues and that living with some local family is part of the bargain. And that struggle, struggling to, to, to make it up the, the minor league ladder is the way you have to do it. And the, that, that entrenched orthodoxy about what baseball is supposed to represent that you go to these little towns in Montana and West Virginia, you know, Bluefield and Butte, and you struggle your way up to the next level. And if you don't make it, you know, that's life. That is so deeply ingrained in the narrative of what baseball means. Um, and this isn't, the, you know, this is the, let me just stop right there of what baseball means. So Lily Rothman wrote a really good piece about this for Slate a few years ago, and she interviewed Marvin Miller, 
uh, before he died. Ma- Marvin Miller, who built the Major League Baseball Players Association, labor hero. And Miller, who was 94 at the time, said exactly what Stephen just said. The notion that these very young, inexperienced people were going to defy the owners when they had stars in their eyes about making it to the major leagues, it's just not going to happen. And this was a guy who defied ownership. You know, that was his you know, mission in life and him saying that it's unrealistic, that says something. That being said, a lot has changed. This class action suit has happened since Lily Rothman did that interview with Marvin Miller. And the thing that strikes me, getting back to what you said, Mike, is just how unbelievably small a payout major league team would have to make. Kevin Trahan wrote about this for Vice Sports the other day, and he said, let's do some basic math. The St. Louis Cardinals, if they paid two, all 250 players in their system an extra $10,000 per year, that would be an extra $2.5 million, which is 0.8% of their yearly revenue. Like You can make arguments about whether the $15 minimum wage is good or bad for the American economy. Because that's spread out over, you know, millions of people and, you know, countless employers and small businesses. This is an incredibly small number of teams having to spend an incredibly small amount of money. And for Major League Baseball to straight-facedly make the argument that this would ruin America's pastime is just bullshit. and, And to do what it does when faced with the prospect of a team wanting, say, a new stadium, threaten to leave. Major League Baseball has used the threat of minor league baseball going away and depriving Americans in small towns of our great American pastime for generations. This is not a new ploy. Most recently, it happened in the early 1990s when Major League and Minor League Baseball were squabbling about what kinds of upgrades, minimum standards that minor league club operators needed to have for stadiums, what sort of benefits they needed to provide for the the, the players and the rosters and the coaches. And that led to uh, this tremendous explosion of hostility between the minors and the majors. And that was at a time when minor league baseball was absolutely taking off and it was in everybody's interest to make sure that the that the system was healthy, and now you're seeing the same sort of baloney. Um, uh, the 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 baseball's commissioner, Rob Manfred, has talked about how complicated it would be to implement the the notion of paying players on a on an hourly you're basis. Have, you're gonna have time cards to time count time cards. When, when oh guys my are god, that's the only way to do it. You can't do that. Time we yeah. gotta have time cards. Couldn't do it any other way. Um, I mean, the idea here is that these athletes need a few more thousand dollars each a year to make their lives something closer to equitable. I mean, the exploitation of minor league baseball players is really on par with the exploitation of, of top college athletes. Yes, except in some ways, top college athletes have, if they go to a good enough college, something like a training table right, where to get they, good food. they actually eat. Uh, here's and maybe the, here's a degree the, if they try. And let's not yeah. forget that a lot of minor league baseball players don't go to college. They are drafted yeah. out of high school. They are 17 and 18 years old when they're shipped off to Bluefield, West Virginia. So I would say that the legislation before Congress is an absolute joke. And it would be nice if the lawsuit were able to go ahead or if there was some sort of change that happens 
within the minor league system. But I think that probably the easiest way to change is for these parent clubs, which don't own the teams, but certainly dictate terms to just realize that they're being penny wise and pound foolish. Just a couple of reasons. The fact that a lot of these players are paid so little is that they tend to subsist on Domino's and McDonald's and Mm -hmm. you can laugh, but oftentimes that creates a habits that are tough to break. And then this is why when they're 28, they're like, oh, I realized I couldn't live on that anymore. So I'm coming into camp in the best shape of my life. But what if they already were in the best shape? They might be healthier. They might be better from a young age. Isn't it better in 2016 to have the people who are starting off in your organization start off optimally instead of having to ramp them up because you are so cheap and you keep them on subsistence-esque wages? Also, you know, a lot of there are a lot of good major league players. The all-star Stephen Wright did not make his major league debut until he was 28. Now, usually if a guy doesn't make his debut until he's 28, he's not going to be an all-star and there's a knuckleball that interceded. But it's not unusual for a very helpful player to be quite old. And how many of these guys, you can't prove it, but there certainly has to have been people who, if you paid him four, five, six thousand more, would have stuck it out another year mm-hmm. and then maybe been able to help the major league club. These are We're talking about peanuts, which are what these minor leaguers have to eat quite often. But we're talking about an investment of so little that you could really make the case that it would help the major league club just to have better working conditions in the feeder system that could help the major league club. And then by having such low wages, you get some of the older, more seasoned players out of the minor leagues. So even if those players can't come up, they're increasing the level of competition in the minor leagues, which is also good for your players who will come up. I'm just making these selfish arguments that should appeal to owners. There's an arrogance also baked into this, that baseball is so attractive that great athletes will be willing to subsist on a few thousand dollar salary a season in order for the opportunity to maybe to have that that you know one in whatever chance it is. I think 17% of draft picks will make the major leagues. That's not a lot. It sounds like a big number, but it's really not a lot. And that's according to a, a Baseball America study. Um, it, the, you know, baseball is not a sport that is exactly appealing to the broadest cross-section of the American athletic youth system anymore. And having these meager wages is not really very appealing, frankly. I mean, if baseball could say, yeah, our apprentice system is one that actually pays you on par with what you what you might be making in some sort of entry-level job, maybe that's an incentive for an athlete to keep playing. Also keep in mind that a lot of the guys who are toiling in Bluefield. I love the Bluefield, Bluefield. has become the stand-in. Yeah. I liked from Bluefield to Butte. That was a very poetic uh, description that you had. A lot of these guys are players who've come over from Latin America and are actually sending money home yeah. from, you know, they're not eating as many f- uh, French fries one week so that they can save money and and send it back to the Dominican or, or what have you. Um, I want to end this uh, with my favorite uh, parlor game, which is uh, let's look at the Fair Labor Standards Act and see which industries have successfully lobbied from a car- for a carve-out from a federal minimum wage and overtime protection. This is a fun list for you, Mike. You mm-hmm, ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, employees of certain seasonal amusement or recreational establishments. That Okay, sound, carnies. We're talking about mm-hmm. carnies. That kind of mm-hmm. sounds like baseball, seasonal amusement. Uh, employees of certain small newspapers. Mm-hmm. Seamen Rags. employed on foreign vessels. 
Oh, thank God. The rest of the phrase. Uh, employees engaged in fishing operations and employees engaged in newspaper delivery. The Newsies. What do you think of the Newsies? All right. The, oh, here's another one. Casual babysitters. Wow, I don't want to hire one of those. I'm, I'm on, an attentive I'm babysitter. All right. These are or maybe just someone who sits a casual baby. These are pretty cool. These are exemptions from overtime pay only. Employees of railroads and air carriers, taxi drivers, certain employees of motor carriers, seamen on American vessels, hmm. and local delivery employees paid on approved trip rate plans, announcers, news editors, and chief engineers of certain non-metropolitan broadcasting stations, <laughs> domestic service workers living in the employer's residence, farm workers, and finally, employees of motion picture theaters. And the answer there, I guess, is for these minor league baseball players to take part-time jobs as casual babysitters <laughs> or employees of a local motion picture theater. Yeah, and if the babysitter tar- starts to tire, you just signal for the pen, get the lefty in. <laughs> Let's be, like, super efficient today and just try to have a tighter show. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, Mike, what's your casual babysitter? <laughs> <laughs> so I it's time for after about... balls. What's your casual yep. babysitter? All right. I want to... I want to talk about the greatest player in baseball, the most compelling, the most exciting player in baseball. He is, of course, Shohei Otani. What? That guy's not in baseball. Oh, he's not in our baseball. He's in the Japanese baseball league. So Shohei, I believe, Shohei Otani is 21 years old. He's been pitching since he was 18 and well compensated for it because the Japanese are not horrible when it comes to this. And the guy is just, you know, He's, he's twirling gems left and right. He is the best ERA in the, oh, he plays for the Nippon Ham Fighters. I just wanted to make clear, they don't fight ham. They're sponsored by Nippon Ham, and they are fighters. And the guy currently has is leading the league with 140 strikeouts. Remember, they're at their all-star break, too. He's pitched uh, 12 games, and he has 140 strikeouts. But what's even more amazing about this phenomenal 21-year-old is his hitting. Now, a couple years ago, he was a really exceptional hitter. He hit 10 home runs in his time as a pitcher. And sometimes they would even let him hit uh, as the designated hitter in games that he wasn't pitching. But then he had a little bit of slump. This is sometimes what happens to 20-year-olds. But now he has raged back. And in 160 plate appearances, I should say this, in 160 plate appearances or 130 at-bats, so they're walking him, The guy has 10 home runs, 27 RBIs, a slash line, if you believe in such things, as 330 of 331, 444, 631, which would make him one of the most impressive hitters in all of the Japanese league if he had the requisite number of plate appearances. Sometimes he even DHs. And by the way, the rule is the Japanese leagues are like American baseball in that one league has the DH and one league doesn't. So Nippon, those fighters of ham, they're in the league that I believe the Pacific League that has the DH. And when he pitches, they just wave the DH. I think in American baseball, you could DH any position, but then you have to stick to it. But in the Japanese league, if your pitcher hits, you just wave the DH. And he even leads off, which is a prominent, it has a little, it carries with it a lot of, a a little more acclaim and glory in the Japanese leagues and in the American leagues. And I want to update you about Otani's daring do in the all-star game it had a blister couldn't pitch but participated in both home run derbies because there are two games in the japanese all-star game and in one of the home run derbies he won it <laughs> <laughs> madison bumgarner wanted to be in the home run derby 
Yeah. Got to go to Japan, man. Stefan, what is your casual babysitter? Well, Sunday's New York Times Magazine published a piece with the ominous title, The Dark Side of American Soccer Culture. It opens with this clause, for the stunted American male frustrated with the changing demographics of the country and gripped by the belief that his days on top are coming to an end, and goes on to make a bunch of radically broad and unsubstantiated accusations about a supposedly racist fan culture in Major League Soccer, and concludes that MLS fans are living out, quote, a dream of an ultimately monochromatic gathering in which thousands of white men can brawl in the streets and drunkenly sing Phil Collins melodies in pubs, lending a hooligan snarl to a white suburban culture. Kang cites racist behavior and fan violence in Europe. He quotes from Bill Buford's 25-year-old book about hooliganism in England, and he avers that Mexican-Americans don't root for the U.S. men's national team because the crowds at MLS games are allegedly racist. But while the story is illustrated with a scary, scary photo of three Seattle Sounders bros burning a Portland timber scarf, Kang doesn't offer a single example of racist or violent behavior by MLS fans. A quick Google search does turn up isolated incidents by random idiots in various MLS stadia and complaints that fan groups and the league should do more to diversify. But you can also find, especially in the overwhelmingly vitriolic reaction to Kang's piece, testimonials that MLS supporters are multicultural and inclusive from Hispanic-oriented groups in D.C. and elsewhere to fundraisers around the league last month after the Orlando. Orlando massacre. Here's Kang's big reveal, though, and it requires a giant logical leap. American soccer fans have appropriated songs and chants from their counterparts in Europe. Some of those songs and chants have unseemly origins or uses. Ergo, quote, selective borrowing cannot be a matter of simple naivete on the part of American fans. I'd say it can. Scroll through the websites of MLS supporter groups and you'll find not a selective borrowing of Euro chants, but pretty much a wholesale one. The singing of some of these rough and tumble, manly man, working class odes by the 20-somethings in MLS supporter groups, men and women, isn't threatening, but vaguely ridiculous. It's a borrowed pose, the neutering of soccer culture, not the dark side. Here, for instance, is Portland's Timbers Army singing Portland Boys. Leicester boys, Liverpool boys, Barnsley boys, they've all been shagging their women or at least pretending to for decades. But after singing this ludicrous in America ditty for years, the Timbers Army last month bowed to complaints about the sexist bowed to complaints about the sexist lyric and agreed to stop. Similarly, an Orlando City FC fan group last year apologized for and changed the line in a chant from, we will not sit down, that's retarded, to we will not sit down, that's disregarded. Even when they named themselves ultras after Euro-thug fans in the context of truly offensive and dangerous ultras in Europe and elsewhere, it's just a bit silly. The video of that sing-along shows around 20 of San Jose's scariest young men and women jumping around in a parking lot. Don't fuck with them, Josh. Don't fuck with them. 
For his Times piece, Kang attended a game in Seattle. There he found conclusive evidence of the American soccer abyss in a pregame parade, another European custom, during which the angry young baristas and software programmers of Seattle's Emerald City supporters sung the 1982 song Take Em All by seminal English punk band Coxsparrer. Take them all, take them all, put them up against the wall and shoot them. Kang implies that to the overwhelmingly white fans in overwhelmingly white Seattle, the M are non-white others. Cox Barrow was referring to music industry executives. The Seattle fans have been singing the lyrics since the club debuted in 2009 because the fan club's founders liked punk rock. The Seattle fans, by the way, also sing another incendiary tune, Seattle by Perry Como. So, Stefan, I had not read that piece until mm-hmm. you mentioned it, uh, in fact, until you were talking, and I've been looking on Facebook, and it did strike me that when you're complaining about the whiteness of supporters and you choose Seattle, here are the statistics on Seattle, non-Hispanic, white, 66%, mm-hmm. Asian, 13%, black or African-American, 7%. And I was saying to myself, well, I've been to a Red Bulls game and their Red Bull Army or whatever they call it. That was really a diverse group. Yeah. And so I went to the Facebook page, Empire of Supporters, and I just looked at who gave them reviews. First name, Anthony Lynn, look picture, definitely seems like an Asian guy. Second name, Charles Gardella. Third name, Oscar Jamier Tovar, seems certainly like a Latino guy. Patrick Galdowski, Kevin Aquino, Giancarlo Teodosio, Monica Ostrasezwaska. I mean, it is Vincent Arroyo. I'm just reading down the list. Kassan Andy Du, another Asian guy. You know, of the top of the first 20 people, it seems like 11, 12 are non-white, uh, non-white Americans. So it seems like cherry picking or just bad statistics overall. Yeah, that was the one of the main complaints about the piece was that many of the MLS supporter groups are diverse. Yeah. One's Um, outside of Seattle, maybe. Right. Yeah. Right. Josh, what's your casual babysitter? NBA Hall of Famer Nate Thurmond died over the weekend of leukemia. He was 74. The obits for Thurmond mentioned a couple of key facts. He was born in Akron, Ohio, the same city as LeBron James. He was named one of the greatest 50 players in NBA history. He was a great defensive center. He recorded the first official quadruple double in NBA history, 22, 14, 13, and 12 blocks in a game in 1974. ESPN and the Tampa Bay Times also both included the sentence, on November 4th, 1967, he became the first player ever to hold Wilt Chamberlain scoreless for a game. One thing that the obits don't mention is that according to Jim O'Brien's complete handbook, of pro basketball, Zelmo Beatty switched from the NBA to the ABA under the misconception that Thurmond was making a similar move. It wasn't really explained how that misconception started. Uh, there's just a rumor going around in the locker room. Uh, here, I think that's Nate Thurmond going right. to the ABA. Zelmo. Whispering campaign. Zelmo's like, hey, that sounds fun. I'm going to go play for Utah. But then Nate Thurmond never did it. Um, but let's get back to Thurmond. And Will Chamberlain, Big Nate, had been drafted third overall by the San Francisco Warriors in 1963. He started his career as Chamberlain's backup. In the book Tall Tales, Thurmond told Terry Pluto, when I was a rookie with the Warriors, Wilt took me under his wing. He bought me meals, 
took me to Kim Novak's house for a party. Believe me, going with Wilt Chamberlain to Kim Novak for a party was a real eye-opener for this young man from Akron. Wilt also took me to the San Francisco Jazz Festival. He was a legend, the man who scored 100 points in a game, the only man in basketball who literally could look down on me. I was in awe of him. In 1965, the Warriors were having money problems. They traded Wilt to Philadelphia. Two years later, Wilt's Sixers played Thurman's Warriors in the 1967 finals. The Sixers won. It was the first of Chamberlain's two NBA titles. Wilt averaged 17.7 points. And I love the rebounding totals from back then, 28 and a half rebounds per game. Thurmond, 14.2 points, 26.7 rebounds. So comparable. This was before the block shot was an official stat, but Wilt put up an unofficial quadruple double in game two, seven years before Thurman's official quadruple double. Wilt had 10 points, 38 rebounds, 10 <laughs> assists, and 10 blocks. Wilt's scoring dropped off around this time because he wasn't shooting the ball nearly as much as he used to. In 1961-1962, he averaged 50 points per game for the whole season. He took 39 and a half shots each night. I mean, that's a slow night for Kobe Bryant, but 39 and a half shots is a huge number. In 1967-1968, that regular season, he took just 16.8 field goal attempts per game, even though he led the league in field goal percentage. So that is the backdrop for November 4th, 1967. This is the regular season after the Sixers beat the Warriors in the playoffs. In that rematch of the finals, uh, regular season game, the Sixers again beat the Warriors, this time by the score 117-110, with Chamberlain not attempting a single shot from the floor. He did make a solitary free throw, though. So the so ESPN and the Tampa Bay Times were wrong. He was not held scoreless by Nate Thurmond. He scored one point. Uh, and he also had 13 assists in the Sixers' victory. A few weeks later, after another game against the Warriors in which Wilt scored 12 points, this time in a loss, Chamberlain assist, insisted to the AP that nothing is wrong with me. He added, give some credit to Nate Thurmond, who the AP explained had out-rebound Chamberlain 25-23 to 23, and kept him away from the hoop when it counted. So what made Thurmond such a great defensive player? According to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, in an interview in the early 80s, he was agile and quick, and he played aggressive defense. A lot of people beat up on me and said they played great defense. Nate really did. Nate was the first, and who do you think the second guy was that, that Kareem identified as playing great defense against him? Zell, wait, Walt Bellamy. No, Zelmo Beatty. <laughs> Neither. Bill Walton. Damn it. Hmm. In his New York Times obit for Thurmond, uh, Richard Goldstein quotes from a Times story from 1976 in which Thurmond, then near the end of his career, says, blocking shots still turns me on. Nate Thurmond, blocking shots turns everyone on. The bluest skies you've ever seen are in We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Members Elmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. The bluest skies you've ever seen are in C.
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.